You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles open to John chapter 6, let's read together verses 22 through 27. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and we commit our time now to you. As we look at your word, it is our desire that you, Spirit of God, would grant to us understanding and illumination. May your word be our guide and may your spirit be our teacher. We pray that you would be glorified through this time and give us understanding today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. When I introduced John chapter 6, I told you that John chapter 6 contains two different miracles done to two different groups of people with two different responses. And so far, we've now arrived at the point where we have looked at those two different groups of people, the two different miracles and the two different responses. The two miracles being the feeding of the 5,000 that was done to the multitude or for the multitude, and their response being that they wanted more. They wanted to make him king so that they could use Jesus for their own ends. The other miracle, the second miracle, was the walking on water that Jesus did, and it was just to his disciples, a different group of people, and their response was worship and adoration of Jesus. So now we reach the point in John chapter 6 where we come to this discourse, what is known as the bread of life discourse. Two different miracles, two different groups of people, two different responses, and now the, the, the discourse serves the function of drawing a line between these two groups of people. The discourse explains why it is that the multitude, having seen the miracle, responded the way that they did, and why it is that the disciples, having seen another miracle, responded the way that they did. There is a, a sovereign reason behind that. One group responds with unbelief and selfish motives. Another group responds with belief, worship, and obedience. So why two different responses? The discourse explains that for us. So this is known as the Bread of Life Discourse, and it's our joy, I think, to start this this morning. This is the fourth of seven discourses in the Gospel of John. And we have looked at the three other ones. There is the New Birth Discourse in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Do you remember that? Then there is the Living Water Discourse of chapter 4 with the woman at the well. There is the Divine Son Discourse in chapter 5 with the Pharisees. And now the Living Bread or the Bread of Life Discourse in chapter 6 with a, a multitude of people around the Sea of Galilee. And this takes place up in Capernaum. And as with the miracles, each one of the discourses of Jesus is intended to teach us something about him. Each miracle puts on display some facet of his, his work, his ministry, his life, his character, his person, his glory, his majesty. In the same way, each discourse is intended to give us some instruction about some facet of the Lord Jesus. 
some element of his character or his work. And I picture it this way, as, as we work our way through the Gospel of John, Jesus is for John a like a precious gem, a jewel, a large one. And with every miracle and with every discourse, John turns the gem a little bit so that we can behold some new sight of it, some new element of it, some new glory of it. And every discourse and every miracle is looking at a different surface of this precious jewel. So in chapter 3, we saw, in the discourse of chapter 3, we saw that Jesus is the one who secures, by being lifted up as a serpent like the serpent was in the wilderness, he is the one who secures our regeneration. In chapter 4, we saw that Jesus is the living water who satisfies our thirst. In chapter 5, we saw that Jesus is the divine Son, who being equal with the Father, is the judge of all of the world and the one who gives life to whomever he wills. He is sovereign over eternal life. He is sovereign over resurrection, and he is sovereign over judgment. And now in chapter 6, we are going to see that the Lord Jesus is the bread of life, who coming down from heaven gives life to the world, and he satisfies the hunger of our souls. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness find in Jesus a constant and sufficient supply for their hunger. And Jesus is able to meet our needs, our spiritual needs, out of his own self-sufficiency. That's what the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 was intended to show. That Jesus is able to meet the needs of all who come to him out of his own self-sufficiency. He needs to turn to nobody else. He simply does it out of his own self-sufficiency. And now the Bread of Life discourse shows us that Jesus is able to meet the spiritual needs of his people out of his own self-sufficiency. He is the Bread of Life and he gives Water to the thirsty soul, regeneration to the one who needs to be born again, judgment to those who need to be judged, life to those who need to be resurrected, and food for the hungry, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So we pick up now the the bread of life discourse really begins down in chapter 6, verse 26. There's sort of a, a gap here between verses 22 and 25 where we need to fill in a few details to explain how it is that the crowd gets over to where Jesus is at, because we've looked at how Jesus got to where Jesus is at, right? He walked on water. The disciples spent all night in the boat. They've now arrived over where Jesus is at with Jesus on the shore. Now we have to explain or understand how it is that the crowd, the multitude who saw him feed the 5,000, how they got from one side of the lake to the other. That's verses 22 to 26. But before we dive in, I want to remind you of a pattern in chapter 6 that I want you to keep this in your mind. I mentioned this several weeks ago, and I want to remind you of this because this is key to understanding the discourse. John changes our attention from one group of people to another group of people, back to this group of people, and back to this group of people, back and forth like this throughout chapter 6. And that's key. It's not an accident that John does that. John is playing these two groups against each other, and he is contrasting these two groups of people, the multitude and the disciples, the 5,000 or 15, 20,000, however many that was, and the twelve. And so the chapter begins with the multitude receiving, needing the bread, receiving the bread, and our focus in the first miracle is on that group of people, that massive crowd. Then our focus changed over to walking on water, and it's just the twelve, just the twelve disciples. Now beginning in verse 22, we're going back to the crowd, and by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to be back talking with the disciples again. And the reason that John does this is because he is drawing a line in a very definitive and distinct and offensive way between these two groups of people. John chapter 6 contains some of the most offensive language to the pride-filled, vainglorious human heart that you will ever read in all of your life. In fact, 
Our prideful, vainglorious hearts, if you have them, will not survive chapter 6 unassaulted. It's going to be brutal. But the reason is, is because Jesus is drawing this line between these two groups of people. So focus on the one, focus on the other. Now we're back to the crowd, beginning in verse 22. Really two paragraphs that we're looking at today, verses 22 to 25. It's the travel of the crowd, the traveling of the crowd. And then verses 26 and 27 is the teaching of the Christ. Sort of two pegs to hang your your thoughts on. The traveling of the crowd, verses 22 to 25, and the teaching of the Christ, verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 begins the Bread of Life discourse, so we're just going to have a chance to uh, just sort of introduce it really today, and then we'll pick it up in verse 28 next week. Read with me again, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now let me fill in a detail. In the white spaces between verse 21 and 22, Matthew tells us what was going on. Do you remember the previous night, the disciples had got into a boat. Jesus had dispersed the crowd, went away on the mountain to pray. The disciples got out in the middle of the sea, and a wind came down out of those hills that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And the storm came up, and they rode until the fourth watch of the night, Mark says, which was between 3 and 6 a.m., and they basically got nowhere. They got nowhere except to the middle of the sea, which they had been all night long, pulling at the oars, trying to hit land. And they were exhausted, they were tired, probably frustrated, and that's when Jesus appeared. They thought he was a ghost. Jesus got into the boat, and it landed immediately on the sea of Gennesaret, or on the shore of Gennesaret. Gennesaret was the plain that rested between Bethsaida to the south and Capernaum to the north. Now remember, Mark says that they were aiming for Bethsaida. Mark and Luke both say that they landed at the plain of Gennesaret, between Bethsaida to the south and Capernaum to the north. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 14 a a little detail that sort of fits in John 6 between 21 and 22. And here's what Matthew writes. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, that is Jesus, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. So that's what's going on between verse 21 and 22 of John 6. Jesus is now over on the western shore of the Sea of of Galilee, and he is healing people. They're bringing people to him en masse. So having been up all night praying and then down walking across the water, the disciples land, and word immediately goes out, and another crowd of people gather to him, touching the cloak and being healed. But now John focuses attention back on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and on the eastern shore is this crowd. This is the same crowd that saw him feed the 5,000 and do all of the healings the previous day. Now, how many people are part of the crowd mentioned in John chapter 6, verse 22? It's not all of the 5,000 or counting, that's the 5,000 men, but counting women and children, it would have been that received the food, 15 to 20,000 people. Do you remember that number? This wouldn't have been that full crowd because the previous night, Matthew and Mark tell us that after Jesus forced the disciples to go out in the boat into the sea, he dispersed the crowd. So many, perhaps most of those people would have gone home or gone off into the, uh, the regions to find lodging for the night. But there are some, apparently, who stayed out in the field over the night, spent the night out in the fields where Jesus had multiplied the bread and fish, and they woke up the next morning and Jesus was not not there. It wasn't all 5,000, this crowd, because the, the fact that boats, a few boats from Tiberias, were able to bring these people across is evidence that we're not talking about 20,000 people. So most of those people have dispersed, but we still have a crowd. John doesn't tell us how many. Matthew, Mark, Luke don't tell us how many. But probably, I would just guess, and this is just sanctified guess, we're talking hundreds, hundreds of people, not thousands, but probably hundreds of people, 
who are now still intent on going and finding Jesus. I would suspect that these are the same people who wanted to make him king the previous night. And now seeing Jesus sort of squelch those ideas and disperse the crowd and send the disciples away and go away to be alone, alone, this same group of people that wanted to make him king the previous night have now returned and they are wandering around the shore and those green areas looking for Jesus, trying to find this one that now I think they still want to make king. But they notice something. They recall, verse 22 says, that the previous night there had only been one boat there. And the disciples had got into that one boat and they had sailed away, but Jesus had not gotten into that boat with them. And they had sailed out into the middle of the sea and now they are looking at the fact that there are no boats, there are no disciples, and there's no Jesus. They can do the math. He was here with us. He sent the disciples away. There was no other boat at his disposal. He left here. He spent the night up on the mountain. And now we wake up and it's morning and he is not here. So where did he go? He could not have walked along the shoreline around the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee and gone that direction because surely we would have seen him. And they're perplexed later on when they ask him, Rabbi, how long have you been here? They want to know where Jesus is at. So look at verse 23. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now John doesn't tell us why these boats came from Tiberias. Tiberias was on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was even further south than Bethsaida. And Tiberias was the capital city of the region, but John just says there came other small boats from Tiberias. Why did the small boats arrive and, and land near the place where Jesus had fed the multitude? What's going on there? Where did these other small boats come from? And why are they coming to this region? It's a desolate place. Matthew and Mark told us that. It's a desolate place. There's no cities over there. They just show up where the crowd had been. Why are the small boats coming? Could be a few different reasons. It might be, number one, because these small boats were out fishing in the sea that night, and they, like the disciples, had spent the night out on the waves in the storm, rowing for land. And now that the sea has died down, which we know it did, now that the sea has died down, they just made for the nearest piece of land to get some rest and maybe get out of the boats and dry off and, and get some rest before they headed back to Tiberias. It might be that they were just out on the sea, and they spent the night there, and now day has come, and they land. And so they landed near the place where Jesus had multiplied the bread and fish. A second option, it is possible that these people came from Tiberias seeking Jesus because they heard of the miracles that were going on in that region. They heard of his healings. They heard of the feeding of the 5,000. Word had spread. And so now day has come and they set out and they sail from Tiberias up to uh, where Jesus was at looking for Jesus. They're seeking him. They want to see. They want to get in on some of this action and see this one who's working these miracles. Or it might be that these are good, entrepreneurial, self-motivated capitalists who see the crowd on one side and they're saying to themselves, they're in a desolate place and they may be willing to pay a few dollars to be ferried across the lake from one side to the other. And that's what a fisherman would do. If you were out fishing all night and you caught nothing and you saw a crowd like that, you would say to yourself, this might be an opportunity to make a little bit of money. So it might be that the boats came from Tiberias up there because they saw the crowd and they thought that they could sell a trip across the sea. Whatever reason it is that they came, and there are plenty of good reasons why they might have come, it's the boats from Tiberias that show up, and the crowd sees the boats, and they say, let's go look for Jesus. Now, if you wanted to look for Jesus, where would you start looking? Where had the disciples sailed toward? The Western Sea, which was near Tiberias. And not only that, but what was Jesus' hometown? It was Capernaum. Now, it's not where he grew up. That's where he spent his adult life and his years in ministry. He spent more time in Capernaum than he did anywhere else in the northern regions of Galilee. So they look the first place that you would think to look, which is in Capernaum. Now, they know Jesus isn't there. They're absolutely perplexed as to how he might have gotten across or around the lake. 
since there was no boat there, it never entered into the crowd's mind that Jesus might have walked across the water. Why would they assume that? You wouldn't assume that either, would you? You wouldn't assume that. I wouldn't assume that. The disciples didn't assume that Jesus had the ability to do that, but he did it. The crowd is totally mystified by this. So they set sail in the boats from Tiberias across the sea to Capernaum. Look at verse 24. They got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So between verse 21 and 22, Jesus is healing people on the western shore, making his way from the plain of Gennesaret up into the city of Capernaum. Because if you look ahead just a little bit to verse 59, you will see that this entire bread of life discourse is spoken and taught in the synagogue at Capernaum while Jesus was teaching there. So while Jesus is making his way from his landing point up into Capernaum, the crowd is traveling on the Tiberian boats from the eastern shore over to the western shore, and they land at Capernaum, and they search out Jesus and find him in the synagogue. And they ask him this question, Rabbi, and that form of address is important, Rabbi, when did you get here? Rabbi. Do you know what rabbi means? It just means teacher. It just means teacher. Now, why do they call him teacher? Maybe because he was teaching in the synagogue. Verse 59 says that. So they might have just addressed him as teacher because he was teaching in the synagogue. But rabbi is an interesting form of address for somebody that just 12 hours earlier they were trying to make king. Isn't that a bit perplexing? They call him teacher. Now, they had just seen him multiply bread and fish and provide for the needs of fifteen to 20,000 people, and they address him as teacher. That indicates to us the very low view that they still had of Jesus. They just refer to him as teacher. They had tried to make him king because they wanted out of him whatever they could get out of him, but that didn't work. He thwarted those plans, and now they simply refer to him as teacher. Not as king, not as son. Was Jesus a rabbi? He was a teacher. That would be a proper form of address. But after seeing him multiply bread and fish and feed 15 to 20,000 people out of his own self-sufficient resources, you would think that they would have called him Lord, Kyrios, Adonai, Jehovah, Yahweh, Son of God, something like that. But they just refer to him as teacher. That's our very first indication that the crowd, the multitude, did not get it. They did not understand the significance of what he had just done. They should have said this. They should have thought in their minds this. Our God supplied bread out of heaven for His people in the wilderness for 40 years. We have just seen a man provide bread out of nothing for His people in the wilderness. They should have put two and two together and concluded that He was more than just a teacher. But they didn't. They concluded that He was a teacher. So they call Him Rabbi. When did you get here? There's more packed into that question than just a, just a desire to know what time he arrived. They want to know how he got there as well. When did you get here? How did you do this? Did it take you a long time? Were you here last night? The morning? Did you walk by us on the shore? How? They want to know not only when, but also how. If they can answer the when question, they can ascertain the how question. When did he arrive? When did he leave? How did he get to Capernaum? That's the traveling of the crowd. Now look at verses 26 and 27. They've asked him the question, Rabbi, When did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Is that an answer to the question? When did you get here? And Jesus says, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. But that's not what we asked. We asked when you got here. We want to know how you got here. And Jesus bypasses their question entirely. 
I read a statistic, and I wish I had kept it sometime, and it was a, it was a marvelous statistic, of the number of questions that were asked of Jesus that he never answered. You see it throughout the Gospel of John. People say things to Jesus that he doesn't even respond to. He just jumps right past the question or the statement and goes right to a totally different subject. That happens, I forget even, I'm not even going to guess at the number of times, but it was a large number of times that he was asked questions that he never answered in the Gospels. Then there are a number of questions that Jesus asks people in the Gospels, trying to elicit a response from them. This is one of those instances of Jesus giving an answer to a question that they did not ask. They asked, when did you get here? Jesus answered this question, what is the motive of my heart? And Jesus jumps right past the question of when he arrived to why they arrived. They were seeking him, Jesus said, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And he is reproving their and rebuking their self-serving, self-seeking, self-saturated desires. And he is going right to the heart of why it is that they were seeking him. Why were they seeking him? Jesus says, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, if Jesus, now this is an interesting statement. You'd seek me not because you saw the signs. If you flip back to John chapter 6, verse 2, John says, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing. John 6, verse 26 says, you seek me not because you saw the signs. 6, verse 2 says they were seeking him because they saw the signs. 6, verse 26, Jesus says, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs. So which is it? seeking him because they saw the signs because they didn't see the signs. Well, Jesus identifies their true motive. It's because you ate the loaves and were filled. You got a free meal. And now you want another free meal. You ate the loaves and you received physical satisfaction for your physical hunger. You were hungry. I fed you. Now you're hungry again. And you're wanting to know, we had free dinner. Where's free breakfast? Do we, do we not get a continental breakfast for staying out in the field with you all night long? They want another meal, another satisfaction for a earthly, physical, temporary hunger. They're giving no thought at all to the eternal state of their souls, but they want to be filled physically. So Jesus says, and that's their motive. And by the way, that is the most, ba- uh, the most base, the most vile, and the most idolatrous motive possible. To come to Jesus because of what he can give to them. They had received the food, and now they want more food. So what does Jesus mean when he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs? What does he mean by that? Do you understand that there is a difference between seeing something and seeing something? Do you understand that it is possible to see and yet not see? To hear and yet to not hear? This is the play on words that John is using in John 6, and he does it throughout the chapter Look at verse 38, because he does this up in chapter 6, verse 38. I should say down in verse 6. Uh, sorry, not verse 38, verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. What is he speaking of there? He's speaking about physical sight. You have seen me, but you have not believed. Now look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. What type of sight is being described in verse 40? It's not merely simply laying your eyes on Jesus and seeing him. Thousands of people did that. Jesus said, you see me with your eyes, but you do not believe. But this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees me, beholds me, and believes, gets eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There are two types of seeing, isn't there? 
So what does Jesus mean when he says, you seek me not because you saw the signs? Had they seen the sign? They saw the signs. They saw him multiply bread and fish. They saw him make all of that out of nothing and feed the multitude. They saw it with their eyes. But did they really see the sign? Did they really perceive the meaning of the sign? No, they didn't. And that's what Jesus is saying. You are seeking me, and you're seeking me not because you saw me do what I did, and you have understood it, and you have perceived it, and you have embraced it, and you understand the significance of it. They saw what he did with their eyes, but they did not perceive what it was that the sign signified. The sign was pointing to something, and that they did not see. That they did not perceive. They did not put two and two together and say, he multiplied bread, and he is therefore the creator. He created out of thin air. This must be the Son of God. The disciples in the boat, when they saw Jesus walk on water and get into the boat, they said, truly you are God's Son. We saw that Matthew 14, 33. But the crowd didn't come to that conclusion. The crowd saw with their eyes a miracle, but they did not see, perceive, and understand the signs. And so they are coming to Jesus not because they saw the sign and they have understood it and they understand what it signifies and so they've come to the right conclusion. They're coming simply to get their stomachs filled again. As I said, the most vile, the most base, the most simple, and one of the most idolatrous motives possible. And Jesus rebukes it and reproves the crowd for seeking him with the wrong motives. Do you understand how different that is from modern evangelicalism? One of the major doctrinal battles going on today within the evangelical church in America is the battle over philosophy of ministry. Jesus reproves the crowd for seeking him with false motives. Today, evangelical leaders tell us that we need to appeal to people's false motives to get them in the church. The easiest thing to do in all of the world is to draw a crowd. Go down to City Beach and do something vain or profile, uh, profane. Uh, go down to a vile. Go down to the City Beach and, and do something goofy or stupid and you'll draw a crowd. The easiest thing in all of the world to do is to draw a crowd. And we are told that in order to draw a crowd and to bring people into the church, that we need to appeal to these baser motives. You ever wonder why Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn have such a huge following? John 6 explains it. You're just like the crowd. They come for everything under the sun except the giver of the gifts. They want all of the gifts. And if you tell people that God or Jesus will give them a big house and a fat wallet and a nice bank account and all of the other stuff that goes with it and their best life now, the crowds will come. If any one of those people started preaching the true gospel, their following would evaporate overnight. It would be gone because people don't want that. People want the gifts. They want the benefits, but they do not want the giver of the gifts. The easiest thing in all the world to do is to draw a crowd. Uh, every year this happens around Easter time. There was a church this last year around Easter, and I don't even remember the name of the church. They gave away a free car to somebody who attended their Easter services. There are churches that give away $50 gas cards to all first-time visitors. They give away iPods to whoever parks in the right place in the parking lot. Or they pull a number out of the hat and they give away these things in order to get people in the doors. That is appealing to the basest, vilest, idolatrous motive possible to get people in the doors. It is horrible. That is the very thing that Jesus rebukes in John 6. And that has become the philosophy of ministry du jour, the church of evangelicalism today. It's horrible. I said before, it is so blatantly anti-biblical, so blatantly anti-Christian, so pathetically blasphemous towards Jesus Christ that it's amazing to me that Christians embrace it for even a moment. And yet they do. We're told you appeal to that motive and get people in the door. And that's a bait and switch that any used car salesman would be proud of. My apologies to used car salesmen if you're sitting here. 
It's horrible bait and switch. You tell people, we'll appeal to your base, vile, idolatrous motives to get you in the door. And then once you're in there, we're going to tell you to sacrifice that, to crucify that. You need to lay it aside and come to Christ, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. And if I were one of those people, I'd be saying to them, wait a second, you appealed to that motive to get me in the door and now you want me to crucify that? You want me to give that up? Isn't that what you used to get me in here? Now you're telling me it's wrong? It's bait and switch. This is a vile motive. And Jesus is reproving and rebuking the crowd for coming to him with the wrong motives. John Calvin said, Just as today many would eagerly embrace the gospel if it were empty of the bitterness of the cross and only brought carnal delights. End quote. That's it. You remove the bitterness of the cross and the offense of the cross from the gospel, promise people physical carnal delights and the fulfillment of all their dreams, their expectations, and their desires, and people will flock to that message like bees to honey. I don't know if bees go to honey, like bees to pollen maybe, whatever the analogy would be. They will come, and they will come in droves for that type of a message. Verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. One of the things that we as Christians have to guard against is making the same mistake that the crowd made in John 6, and that is to cherish the gifts more than we cherish the giver of the gifts. It's an easy thing to do, to miss the fact that every good thing that we have been given, every physical delight, every enjoyment, every pleasure, every joy, every physical blessing is intended by God to draw us to Him so that we might offer to Him a heart of wonder, love, and praise to glorify Him and to thank the giver of every gifts. And it is very easy for us as temporal passing away creatures to set our sights on the gifts and to begin to cherish them more than the giver of the gifts. Spurgeon said, if you delight more in God's gifts than God himself, you're practically setting up another God above him, and this you must not do. It's idolatry. And that's just because this is the crowd, this is the unbelieving crowd, doesn't mean there's nothing here for us as Christians to walk away with as a warning. So Jesus, taking the hunger of the crowd, taking their vile motive that they have, which is for a free meal, uses that and turns it around as a teaching opportunity and takes the analogy of bread and the miracle that they had seen and their desire, and which is for bread, and he uses that bread and that as a metaphor to teach them and instruct them about himself. So that's what he says in verse 27, when he says, you do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Just as he did with Nicodemus. This is Jesus' teaching methodology. With Nicodemus, Nicodemus came and Nicodemus was proud of his birth. So Jesus said, you must be born again. The woman at the well came for water, and she had to come constantly back for water, knowing that she was coming for water because she was thirsty and she needed water, and she wanted water and she was drawing water. Jesus took the water and used it as an analogy to teach her about himself, saying, if you knew who it is that you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you water, and that would be a water that once you once you drank of it, you would never thirst again once you took that water. Now he does the same thing with the bread. They want bread. They're hungering for bread. They've seen him multiply bread. So he takes the analogy of bread and uses it as something to teach them about himself. And he says to them, do not labor for the food which perishes. There's food which perishes, and that's the physical food, and that's what they wanted. And Jesus is saying you should not be pursuing just the physical food, that which satisfies the body. Because bread molds, and bread perishes. Just this morning I ate cheese with mold on it. I didn't know. Deidre cut it off, but there's still little pieces of mold on the cheese, and you can taste it on the cheese. All the food and all the natural food that we have, that we enjoy, it all perishes. And you can pursue food, and you're going to be hungry when you leave here, even though you ate before you came here. And you're going to be hungry again before you go to bed tonight. There's nothing you can eat. There's no amount that you can eat that will satisfy you permanently. 
And yet we spend our lives pursuing all of these things that perish. Our bank accounts perish, they burn up. The money that we make, it perishes, it gets burned up. All of our houses eventually be burned up. Everything we have perishes. Everything we work for perishes. Everything you are wearing perishes. And the body in which you live is going to perish. Everything that we are familiar with is perishing, has perished, and will perish everlastingly. And yet this crowd gives thought only to what they can get the next meal, and they are giving no thought whatsoever to acquiring that which cannot ever perish. And here's Jesus' gracious offer. You ought to pursue that which satisfies your eternal soul and your eternal longings. And when you do, Jesus said, I will give you eternal life. The Son of Man will give you eternal life because on him, that is on the Son of Man, the Father God has set his seal. What does Jesus mean by that? He's simply referring to what he talked about back in chapter 5 when Jesus said the Father's committed everything into the hands of the Son. The Father doesn't judge anybody. He's given that duty to the Son. The Son is going to resurrect Him. And then Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you you should believe me just because of the works that I do, the works that I do bear witness to me. The Father bears witness to me. The miracles that I do bear witness to me. The Scriptures bear witness to me. Jesus says, on me, the Father has set His seal of approval. God, through the miracles that you have seen, has vindicated my message and my ministry and my life. And you ought to come to me and receive eternal life. Now, what is it? How is it that Jesus can offer eternal life? It is because he is the one who has eternal life and he can give it, chapter 5, to whomever he wishes. He dispenses and grants eternal life to whoever he wants to grant eternal life to. He is sovereign in that. And as the sovereign God of all of creation, the Father has set his seal, vindicated the Son, and so the Son can offer eternal life to all who will come to him. Now I want you to recognize something because chapter 6, as we get into it, you're going to think I'm leaning way too far to one side of the spectrum. In chapter 5, I noted over and over again this gracious offer of salvation that Jesus gave to those who hated him and were hostile to him and sought to kill him. He offered them over and over again, repent and believe and I will give you life. Repent and believe and I will raise you up. Repent and believe and I will forgive your sins. That offer was extended to those who were trying to kill him over and over again in chapter 5. Now we get to chapter 6 and notice the offer at the beginning of chapter 6. If you will repent and believe, if you will come to me, I will give you eternal life, I will give you salvation, I will give you the bread of life, I will give you myself. Listen, that is a genuine, legitimate, real offer that any sinner, no matter how much they have sinned, no matter what their background, any sinner may come to Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sins when they come to him on his terms to receive from him what he offers to them. That is a legitimate offer. That is not denied or overturned by the fact that all whom the Father gives to the Son come to the Son. And the Son gives to eternal life to those whom the Father has given to Him. Those two things are both true. And I just want you to recognize that right at the outset. This is a legitimate, real offer of eternal life to any who are listening, any in this crowd who will come to Him. But Jesus is going to explain the reason why they will not come. Once again, it has to do with their unbelief, and the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, friends, you and I have to come to Christ and we have to seek the right thing. And how many of us spend our lives chasing things that perish? Not laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves don't break in and steal. How many of us spend our days pursuing our bank accounts and our financial goals and our businesses and all the things that go with it We spend our days collecting our toys and heaping up stuff for a big bonfire at the end when we die. That's what we spend our time for. What Jesus says, 
do not pursue the food that perishes. He's not saying that you should not work to eat. You ought to work to eat. But what he is reproving or rebuking is the mindset that sees only this life and only what can be accumulated in this life and gives no thought to eternal life and the life to come. And so you and I ought to pursue with all of our might those things which contribute to our sanctification and our walk in holiness. And we ought to be as busy with the nurturing of our souls and the feeding of our souls and the serving of Christ and the things which have to do with eternal life as we are about the things of this life. It requires a balanced approach. You and I ought not to pursue in this life only the things that pertain to this life as if this is all we have. And we ought not at the same time deny our body and deny our families and deny the things of this life in order to pursue spiritual goals. Because you can err on either one of those ditches. And instead we ought to have a balanced approach and say I will pursue and I will work to provide for my family and do the things necessary, but I will not in that neglect the feeding and the sanctification and the benefit of my own soul and eternal life. That's our challenge for today. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are worthy of all of our seeking and our pursuit. We thank you that we can pursue you and that you are not far from us. We thank you that in Christ you have provided all that is necessary to satisfy the hungry soul that we have before coming to the the Lord. We thank you that you opened our eyes up to that hungry soul, uh, opened our eyes up to our own hunger and thirsting after righteousness, and that you caused that thirst in us and you drew us to your Son. We thank you for that salvation, that genuine offer of forgiveness of sins. We pray, O God, that you would give us the grace to pursue what is right for our soul and what pertains to eternal life and not to get sidetracked with the things that have to do with this life and will eventually all perish and burn. Keep our sight focused, our, our eyes focused on Christ, we pray, and help us to see in him the satisfaction of our every longing and desire. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.